I was at a dinner party a couple years ago, and I happened to find myself seated next to a guy, super smart scholar of Buddhism. And uh, I was delighted by that. I know a little bit about Buddhism, but he had a PhD, and so I launched into this huge conversation, and of course asked all the questions that you get asked if you're a PhD in anything. And so I started asking the conversation. It's a great conversation. And at one point in the conversation, we were talking about some particular part of the process of enlightenment. And I said to this guy, what does that feel like? This, this stage in enlightenment, what, is it, what does it feel like to subjectively undergo this part of the process of enlightenment? He's like, well, people usually describe it this way. And I said, oh, so people, I said, what, is that what it felt like for you? And he said, oh, I actually don't practice Buddhism. I, I study it. Now, to my mind, that is totally cool. I mean, seriously, you can be an excellent, savvy scholar or something without being a practitioner. You really can, right? You can be a legal expert in the Constitution and not be a practicing lawyer, right? Or that you can. But it made me think, uh, for those of us who are practitioners, for those of us who are committed, consciously committed disciples of Jesus Christ, I wonder how many of us are in sort of a similar zone. Um, we, we have all these ideas about God. We have these thoughts about God. We know these things about God, these facts, if you will, about God. But when we're asked to describe our experience of those things, when we're asked to testify to our own experience of grace, we draw a little bit of a blank. Right? And I want to say, if that is you, that is totally okay. There is no shame in that. Okay? We are all uh, in this salvation experience together, and we are at different parts of the salvation journey. We are. And as many people have said, this is wisdom that I depend on, you can only start where you actually are. And so don't try to start from someplace that you're not, right? And we are in this place, we are all at different places, and that is okay. So I say that not to shame anybody, but part of this series this summer on salvation is to check in on where are we, right? Where am I? Where are you? And, and, and thank you again for telling us where you are. Um, you are loved So this salvation process that Paul is describing in this book of Romans that we've been studying for the past three or four weeks, it's a big thing. We've been talking about it uh, as a huge operating system. Salvation is a huge operating system that is not just running one program, but is coordinating or connecting all these different programs. I've been calling all these different technologies that this huge salvation operating system is trying to connect. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about how one of those technologies is helping us see our mess, helping us see and name our sin, to sort of like accept the condition that we're in, that we find ourselves in. Um, I talked about how uh, our predominant uh, sin that Paul sees in the early part of Romans is this double cocktail, this, this uh, twin mix of, of idolatry and hypocrisy. And that uh, the technology, part of the technology of salvation is helping us to see that and name that. But we are addicted to that uh, cocktail. It has addicted us. It has enslaved us. And we are, uh, we are beholden to that, right? That's, that's, that's one part of salvation. Naming that, seeing that, uh, putting that out there, right? That's, that's one part. That's not the only part of salvation, but that's one part. And then last week, our director of discipleship, Aaron James Brown, she talked about another technology, which the Apostle Paul calls justification, all right? Justification is when God in Jesus Christ, you can say, when Jesus justifies us. That is to say, Jesus breaks in some mysterious way 
breaks the power of our addiction to sin, breaks our enslavement to sin, and says, y'all are no longer slaves. Y'all are slaves. Y'all are slaves. You are sons and daughters. Right? That is what Jesus does for us in justification. We find ourselves here, and Jesus comes in and says, oh, no, 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 no. You are justified. You are alive. You are sons and daughters. You're not slaves. You're sons and daughters. And, 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 and Jesus does that. Uh, I think this is so important. Jesus does that while we are still a mess. All right? And I point that out because Paul says it. Did you hear it in Romans? Paul says, while we were yet in this mess, Christ died for us. All right? While we were yet in this mess, while we were yet in sin, Christ broke, uh, broke in and justified us by his death, by his life, by his death, and by his life again, Christ reconciles us, right? While we were still in a mess, Christ did that for us. And I point that out because uh, there's a lot, there's a false gospel that is being preached in lots of churches, which says essentially the opposite of that, which says that Christ justifies you only after you figure your mess out. All right? This is adapted from Richard Rohr. This is the false gospel. And I'm, I name it as such, all right? I'm, I'm, I'm declaring this is the false gospel. Uh, you can challenge me on that. I'm one preacher, as I always say. I'm one preacher, so you can challenge me on that. This is the false gospel, which says, we find, this is sort of breaking down or diagramming the techno all the technology of salvation. We find ourselves in sin. God punishes us. After we're punished, we begin to repent. That is to say, repentance means to turn. So the punishment makes us turn from all the stuff that's messed us up. And after we are, after we are turning, after we are like, oh, I'm, I'm out of the mess now. I'm getting away from my mess. Then Christ comes and justifies us. And after we're justified, we become transformed. And after that, after that, uh, we get the unconditional love of God. Right? Now you will hear that preached in churches. Yeah. It's a false gospel. All right? The true gospel, again, push back if you want to, is this. I, and I'm quoting Paul. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All right? We find ourselves in this, and sin is just, I know it's a scary word, sin is just all the stuff that holds us down, right? It's stuff that we've done, it's stuff that's been done to us, it's stuff that's happened to us. It's that whole, that whole tangled stuff. All the alienation, all the isolation, all the, all the addictions, all that stuff. While we were in that mess, God loved us, right? Amen. And because God loved us, God sent himself, herself, in Jesus Christ, to justify us, to say, y'all aren't enslaved, y'all aren't slaves to this, you are my children, you are sons and daughters. And when we are justified, we begin to be like, oh, that's, that's true love, I'm not a slave, I am a child of God. And when I know that I'm a child of God, I can begin to turn from that which has bound me up. And as I begin to uh, do that, I experience transformation. Right? I do that not in order to receive. We do that not in order to receive the unconditional love of God. We do that because we have received it yes. in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Alright, so that is the true gospel. Last week, Aaron got us up to justification. Justification, there it is. That's through chapter 4 of Romans. And y'all, this is, I'm going to be honest with you, this is where a lot of Christians stall out. Alright? <laughs> Once you hear that you're no longer a slave, you're a son or you're a daughter, we're like, uh, that sounds good. <laughs> sounds great. Little status shift. Yes. Done. Finished. Right? But in Romans, Paul's like, oh, oh, y'all, we're just getting warmed up. Uh, 
We did sin and justification in chapters 1 through 4, but we're only in chapter 5. There's 11 chapters left. We're just getting warmed up. And there is more on offer. When it comes to salvation, we are not just talking about a shift in status. We are talking about a whole existential change of the entire community and of the world. Right? We're not talking about just accepting a new fact about God or a new fact about ourselves. We're talking about becoming slowly or quickly or both immersed in this swell of freedom and joy and confidence in the midst of our stuff. This swell of joy and freedom and confidence and love that we begin to live our lives from. All right? So let's not stall out here at justification, all right? Because it is possible to have a lot of spiritual information and to have very little spiritual transformation. All right? It's, you hear what I'm saying? It's possible to know a lot about God and to have not undergone God. All right? So we're interested in it. And if that's where you are, that's okay. But let's keep going. All right, let's keep going. All right, so John Wesley, this guy, 18th century, Anglican priest in England. And I know you hear like, 18th century Anglican white guy from England, you're like, what does it have to do with my life? Let me tell you. Um, he's different from us in many ways, but uh, he was like us, like y'all in a lot of ways too. He was super smart. He, was, uh, he wanted to do something big with his life. He wanted to change the world. He wanted to change the church. And by a very early age, he had given his life, at a very early, by 22, he had committed everything he had in him to participate in this great project he thought God had given him. By 22, he was, uh, he'd gotten a graduate degree in theology. He had become a pastor. He had become a professor. He had become a professor at uh, a little university called Oxford. And while there at Oxford, in his spare time, he decided he would, in addition to teaching, organize a student movement uh, that would call students together not just to study the Bible, not just to study theology, but also to serve the poor regularly and to visit those in prison regularly. All this, uh, all this is what he thought God was calling to. And he did this excellently. He did this exceedingly well. He did this for 10 years. By 32, he had done this so well, he was like, let's, let's take this, let's take this international. Alright? And so he gets on a boat and brings it over to, you know, this early 18th century, mid-18th century, brings it over to the colonies uh, that will become America. And on the boat across the Atlantic, there's this crazy storm, and Wesley is freaking out about this crazy storm. And when I say freaking out, I don't mean the kind of freak out that you have when you go through a little rough patch of turbulence on the airplane. And they go, oh! I'm talking like existential freak out, Wesley has. He's freaking out existentially. And he notices there's this one group of Christians on the boat who are not freaking out existentially. They are like super chill in the midst of the storm. They are riding the waves contemplatively, like with freedom. He notices them, like, he notices them, this deep sense of peace and confidence. And he begins to wonder, why don't I have that kind of confidence? I'm a superstar. I'm 32. I've done all this stuff for God. Why don't I have that in me? And he noticed himself that he did not have that confidence and peace and assurance. He had instead this, this hard ball of anxiety. And he began to ask the fundamental question, am I okay? That's what he's asking as he's rolling over the Atlantic. So he made it to the colonies, where it must be said, he failed colossally, which I think is wonderful. Thanks be to God that he failed colossally. That, otherwise, who wants to listen to that story, right? Who wants to hear someone talk about themselves and how good they are all the time, right? He failed 
He did it horribly. And I'll talk more about that in another sermon. But during the time of his great failure, he found one of those Christians, in fact, one of the leaders of those Christians uh, on the boat, this guy called August Spangenberg, uh, which is a wonderful German name. And they were talking about the Christian life and its purpose. And Spangenberg asked Wesley this question based on these verses from Romans, which I'm going to put up here. Now, this is Romans 8, 14 through 17. We read Romans 5. So Romans 5 through 8 is where Paul does this extended reflection on the next technology, if you will, of salvation. Okay? So we're going to get to chapter 5 in a second. But this is the end of this argument, this beautiful argument. And, and this is that Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received instead a spirit of adoption. It is that very spirit that is the spirit of God, bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, if, and then if heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, right? So that's what August Steinberg has in mind when he asked Wesley this. Wesley reports this in his journal. He asked Wesley, have you the witness within yourself? Does the Spirit of God bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God? Wesley reports that he was surprised and didn't know what to answer. 32-year-old superstar. Spangenberg asked, do you know Jesus Christ? Wesley paused and said, I know he is the Savior of the world. See, Wesley knew all the theological bullet points, had him on the air, had that PA, and filled I know he is the savior of the world. Spangenberg said, yes, that's true. Do you know that he has saved you? Wesley answered, I hope he has died to save me. Spangenberg asked again, do you know yourself? Wesley said, I do. But in his journal later, Wesley wrote, I fear my words are false words. Here he is, superstar, Professor, pastor, entrepreneur, got straight A's in everything having to do with the knowledge about God. Straight A's. And he's confessing to himself, at least, couldn't do it publicly at that point, that he had not yet experienced God's salvation in an internal, personal way. He wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert people, but oh, who shall convert me? What will deliver me? My spirit is troubled. As we move into the second half of Romans for the next three weeks, I think what Paul is trying to help us understand is that salvation is not just meant to do something for us. Salvation is also meant to do something in us. Alright? You get the difference? Not just for us in some sort of objective way, some objective metaphysical way, but in us, deep in every fiber of our being. To diminish, well, to do a lot of things, but one of the things is to take that existential angst that you may have, I don't know where that existential whatever blah, that is, and to diminish that, and eventually, perhaps, by the grace of God, to replace that, not with anxiety, but to replace it with deep peace, deep confidence, deep freedom, deep joy, deep love, to replace the angst with that. So I just want to look at the beginning of chapter 5 now. So here's, here he is, beginning the argument which he ended with Spangenberg saying. And I think what he's doing here is sort of breaking down 
we're going to look at this bit by bit in a second, but he's breaking down this operating system of salvation, talking about his general movements. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing in the glory of God. Let's just break that down. Since we have been, uh, we are justified, so this is something that has happened already. Since we have been justified by God in the faith, through the faith of Jesus Christ, right? This has happened already in Christ, once for all, right? Since we have been justified, we have peace, Scripture says, and we stand in grace. We, do, we have that now. That's not just something we have after we die. But we have now, Paul says, we have now in this moment assurance of that, uh, of that grace. We have an experience, a subjective experience of that peace. So that we will boast in our hope to share in God's glory. So something that happened in the past right, gives us right now in this moment a sense of peace. And we hope ongoingly from this point onward to share in the glory of Alright? Paul keeps saying, I think his like thing, his meme through Romans is this. He's like, well, ask whatever you call it, it's like this. There's more on offer than you thought. Alright. I think that is what he's saying all through Romans, right? God does not only want to justify us, God does not only want to make us know that we are accepted. God wants to give us, get this all, a share of God's glory. God doesn't want this to justify us. God wants to glorify us. To give us uh, a long pour, a long drink of God's glory, of God's own godness. God wants us to partake in God's own godness with God. And as we drink or share in that, Paul says, we boast in our hope to share in God's glory. As we drink from that long pour, generous pour of God's glory over time, as we experience that taking root in ourselves, we experience ourselves becoming more and more fully alive. One of the early Christians in the second century said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. Right? So much more is on offer. Like fully alive humanity. That's on offer, right? Sometimes I think salvation is taught as like this like really flat algebra equation. No, no, no. Salvation is a huge reverberating operating system that wants to reverberate every part of your being with God's life. I mean, that is worth that is worth giving your everything for, right? That is that is what's on offer here. God's life, God's spirit, conjoined with your spirit, Mark. Yes. And I, and everybody's, oh, here's the letter. Long drink. <laughs> when you begin to subjectively experience that, when you begin to notice that swell in you, that's what we call assurance, all right? That's the part of the salvation journey that we call assurance. Um, when you are assured, you no longer just believe that God loves you. You are assured of it. You know it. You feel it in your bones. It's more than a fact. It's something that you are experiencing in yourself. So here's the slide again. This is the true gospel. Assurance usually happens around the same time as justification. Around that same time. You know, it's not linear always. Like, it can be a little bit of a mix. But around that same time, you know that you're not a slave, that you're a son or a daughter. You begin to experience. You begin to experience down deep. There's that old Christian hymn. 
You know, I believe you're raised in church. You know, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. Born of the Spirit, washed in his blood, washed in his blood. That's assurance. And Paul says, the chorus goes on to say, what? This is my story. This is my song, right? That's assurance. When it becomes not just something that's happening up here, not just some platonic realm of salvation, but it was like, oh, that thing that Jesus is talking about, that's my story. That's my song, right? That's assurance. And Paul says we can boast in that. Paul's not talking about being arrogant. Paul's talking about we can claim, uh, we can, when he's talk, Paul's talking about boasting, he's talking about singing, this is my story, this is my song, right? And once you begin to sing that song, y'all, once you receive that, oh, Lord Jesus, you cannot be stopped. Not because of your own power, but because God's power is now joined with your power, and these things are coming in, and you cannot be stopped when you know that you have the assurance. You cannot be stopped. I remember a few years ago, several years ago now, I was being interviewed by Time Out Chicago, which is a little magazine that used to exist in print, now it's just online. And it was about the inclusive church movement in Chicago and beyond. And the reporter asked me, um, that's lovely, um, the reporter asked me, uh, and just like asking questions, said, "Oh, you're gay, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, I am." And then he included that as part of the description of my personality being in the article, which is like that's like an aside, and uh, which is fine because that is true. Uh, and uh, came out and wrote oh, this great article it's about the inclusive church movement. One of my denominational bosses uh, heard about this and was quite conflicted about this. Uh, sort of on the inside, behind closed doors, was sort of quasi-tolerant, but the fact that it was public, oh, very conflicted. And called me into his office, and totally called me out, and went through and proceeded to sort of rip me a new one for coming out so publicly, and I was like, well, I just was talking about my life. Rip me a new one, sort of got into language around uh, uh, the sort of shame tactics, and uh, this language, I should have been more careful, and I should have checked in with him before I told my story. And that I, before I said anything, I should have checked in, because I, I could have possibly broken my ordination vows, my covenant. You know, I sat there for an hour and a half, and with every statement, I was like, I hear what you're saying, but I fundamentally disagree with you. I hear what you're saying, but um, I have not broken covenant. I hear what you're saying, but I have done nothing wrong. And my boss said, you seem, are you taking me seriously? You seem sort of nonchalant about it. And I said, oh, don't get me wrong. It's not nonchalant. It's called assurance in Christ. I'm okay. It's called assurance in Christ. Don't, don't mistake it for nonchalance. <laughs> it comes from a deeper place. It comes from Jesus. I know someone right now who's feeling this assurance, and therefore they are summoning from their bones from Christ's blood in their bones, they are summoning a divine boldness to call out something at work, an injustice at work, to point out a potentially racist power dynamic going on at work. And they can stir up some conflict and get in trouble because they're not a team player. Why are they even considering that? You know what it's called? It's called assurance in Christ. 
John Wesley failed colossally in the colonies. He was literally chased out of England, chased out of Savannah, Georgia. They chased him through the swamps to the boat to go back to England. Get on back to England in four months, back in England, massively depressed. And he was there depressed, reading, he was back in London, reading a commentary on, wait for it, the book of Romans. <laughs> and he had this experience of justification and assurance. In his journal, he called it his heart being strangely and from that point on, y'all, I mean, watch out. Wesley took the church to the street. He pissed off all the Anglican bishops who were like, you get to tamp this thing down. Yes. He started talking about the end of slavery in the British Empire. He started talking about women being able to preach in the 18th century and lay people being able to start churches. And they said, shut up. And he said, oh, no, no, no. You know why? It's called what? Assurance in Christ. This wasn't from a place of petulance. This wasn't a childish behavior. This is called a rooted spiritual assurance in Christ. You know the difference? You can feel the difference between petulance and that gift, which is called salvation. I'm going to close with a story that Jim Wallace tells of Desmond Tutu preaching. I know some of you have heard the story. Some of you live in South Africa. Some of you are from South Africa. Desmond Tutu preaching at St. George's Cathedral in Cape Town in the midst of the white supremacist apartheid regime. And uh, an apartheid, anti-apartheid rally in the public square had been canceled by the government, by the racist government. And Tutu said, oh, you can't cancel the rally. Uh, you can cancel it, but you can't, you can't cancel it. We'll, we'll just have it in the church. So come on in the church. So all the folks who were going to that rally swelled into St. George's Cathedral. And they were swelling there, and, and the police were also massing outside of the cathedral walls. And then they made the bold move, the bold move of coming into the cathedral. And the police walked down in full gear down the aisle of the church and stood there while the worshipers were listening to Tutu preach. And they had not just their bully clubs and guns and things, they had tape recorders and they were writing down and tape recording everything that Tutu said. And Tutu saw that and continued preaching. He said, he said, the system of apartheid cannot endure because it is evil. And he then pointed his finger, y'all heard this story, he pointed his finger at those police standing in the aisle. And he said, you are powerful. You are very powerful. But you are not gods. And I serve a God who will not be mocked. And then he flashed, as he was pointing them in anger, he flashed that typical Desmond Tutu uh, smile. And he said, so since you have already lost, since you have already lost, why don't you come and join the winning side? <laughs> and that congregation erupted, and they began dancing in the church, and they danced out into the streets, and the police moved back because they didn't expect dancing worshipers. They didn't expect that kind of confidence. People asked, how could Tutu find the confidence to do that? How could he find the boldness to do that? How could people, how could people dance past the police with their weapons? But we know it's called what? Assurance in Christ. Don't get me wrong, it is not easy. You didn't hear that from me. It's not easy. One writer says, beautiful things will happen in your life and terrible things will happen. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. You don't know what the world will throw at you. You cannot control what the world will throw at you. But you know, you know, you know you can walk through anything because in Christ, 
you are okay. Right? You can walk through anything. You don't you can't control it. You don't know what the world will throw at you, but you can walk through anything because actually in Christ you are more than okay. You are a son, you are a daughter, you are a joint heir with Christ. You are a sharer in divine glory. May that glory fill us up and make us more and more worthwhile. Amen. 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 Good.